Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business. It's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hey, it's Sean with a quick heads up. Today's episode has discussions about anxiety and other mental health issues. Please take care while listening. Have you ever had a moment of extreme, almost overwhelming anxiety? And I don't just mean that all too normal feeling of nervousness. I'm talking about a much more intense and physical experience. Your heart races, your chest tightens, your muscles shake, you start to feel dizzy. These are symptoms of panic attacks. And if you've experienced one, you know how scary they can be. In fact, lots of people show up at the ER every year thinking they're having a heart attack when they're really just having a panic attack, which says quite a bit about how acute and disorienting the experience can be. What's going on in our brains and our bodies when we have one of these attacks? And why do we have them at all? I'm Sean Elling, and this is The Gray Area. Today's guest is Matt Gutman. He's the chief national correspondent for ABC News and the author of a lovely new book called No Time to Panic. It's a chronicle of Matt's lifelong struggle with anxiety and panic, and it recounts his journey to find something like a cure. It is, as you might imagine, a very personal book. And this, as you might also imagine, is a very personal conversation. We talk about the science of panic attacks and their evolutionary roots. We also discuss his own experiences, as well as mine, and why he thinks it's so important to be honest about these issues publicly. Matt Gutman, welcome to The Gray Area. Thanks, Sean. It's good to be here. You know, we, we've never spoken before. I've been following you a little bit since I got your book, and, and now I kind of feel like I know you a little bit. So let's just go ahead and say we're friends at the top. Is that cool? Sure. I like that. It's good uh, that we're friends because this is a, a personal book, and this is going to be a personal conversation. I don't think there's any other way to do it. You obviously have a story to tell here, but why did you decide to put this out in the world? As you know, it is... It is risky to open yourself up in that way, and you don't have to. So why? You know, I, I didn't intend to write a book initially. I was just trying to fix me. 
I was not thinking about writing a book or setting this down or involving anybody other than myself. I needed to know in the beginning, I had this catastrophic mistake on air during our reporting of Kobe Bryant's helicopter crash in which he and his daughter were killed, among others. And I was suspended and I had a reckoning because I'd been carrying this burden of shame and guilt and self-hatred over the panic attacks that I've been enduring for, enduring for 20 plus years. And I'd always successfully managed to deny, compartmentalize, put away, hide, avoid. And now it came out and festered out and it was in the open. Nobody knew that I'd had panic attacks. So I spent that first year, year and a half trying to understand what it was that was wrong with me. Why was I broken? Why did I have so many panic attacks? Why did I suffer on air like this? And how do I go fix it? I didn't have an answer at the end of this year, year and a half, but I did learn something because the last full on sweating through my underwear, you know, shaking that I couldn't hold a piece of paper without it making that crinkling noise, panic attack, was in Phoenix, Arizona. Um, we were reporting on COVID and the Pfizer vaccine had just come out. And like, I knew the story cold, Sean. Like I'd been doing this for a year. I knew everything about COVID. And I just froze. I choked on air. And I thought that I'd, I'd beat it at that point. And I, I carried my shame hangover and my carry-on bag onto the Southwest flight. And remember the seat, it was 13C. I sat down because there was a, a kind-looking middle-aged woman there who was knitting. And I was like, ah, oh, I'm, this is going to be calming. <laughs> and I sat down next to her. And after a short time, I just started spilling my guts and talking to her and revealed this deep, dark secret that I had about panic. And I never, I had never spoken to anybody other than my wife and my shrink about panic. This was not something I could tolerate being out in the open. And I don't know, the floodgates opened. And then after speaking with her, she had suffered panic attacks. Her daughter is a metaphobic whose life has completely been impacted by her panic and her fear of seeing other people choke or vomit, which has sent her almost into agoraphobia. I realized, wow, there are other people out here. And then I started to try to find panic attack support groups, which I couldn't find. And in the ensuing months, I realized, oh, there's a constituency here of more than one. People who suffer from panic are misunderstood, underserved, and undersupported, and maybe I can help be a voice for them. Maybe I can do something. And that's when the genesis of the book came to be. It still blows my mind that your, your job is to get on front of a camera before millions of people on live television <laughs> and speak, and you manage to do that while battling panic attacks. That is, um, that's hard to fathom. Yeah, and people ask, well, why do you, if you panic on air, why are you doing this job? Well, the answer is that I love it. I mean, I'm an extrovert. I am a collector of stories and experiences. And this is something that I, in many ways, I was born to do. I can't imagine doing anything else. And there's nothing like grabbing people by the lapels and telling a television story, right? You're showing these pictures and you're bringing people into these places that they wouldn't have access to otherwise. And for me, that's a privilege. I'm also able to speak to people in this shared language of grief that we have, because often I'm meeting people like first responders, but in a different way, on the very worst day of their life. And I've got probably 30 seconds to make an instant connection with them and to get them to trust me with their story, with something that's so precious, this trauma, this sadness, this horrific experience that they're undergoing at that moment. 
And I'm just partly through skill, because I've done it for a long time, and partly through experience and, and nature, I'm able to do that. But like, I, I can't imagine doing anything else. So I didn't want to leave, but I was willing to leave the news business because I couldn't take the panic anymore. And I was afraid that I would make another mistake like that. We should back up ever so slightly for a second here. This is an important topic, and I don't want to take anything for granted. And so I should ask you a very fundamental question, which is, what the hell is a panic attack exactly? What's going on in our brains when we have one? That's a good starting point. I think of a panic attack as the orgasm of anxiety, right? If an orgasm is the maximal expression of pleasure, a panic attack is the maximal expression of anxiety, right? It is this explosion of fear in your body that you feel with every fiber of your being. It's basically your brain immediately telling you that you're under threat. And what it does is sends a cascade of chemicals throughout your body to alert you, to be ready to fight, freeze, run. And it feels, it's, it's almost as unique as a fingerprint, but most people feel some of this suite of symptoms, right? Racing heart, you feel like your heart's pounding or it's gonna burst through your chest, shortness of breath, trouble swallowing, tunnel vision, shaking, trembling, sweating, feelings of derealization, you don't know what's going on or where you are, feelings of loss of control, um, feelings of impending death, and the, the combination of like muscle seizing and heart pounding is the reason that so many people turn up in the nation's ERs thinking that they're having a heart attack when they're having a panic attack. I think I may have experienced low-grade panic attacks over the years. I, I think um, the only time I'm pretty sure I experienced a full-blown panic attack, and actually it didn't, I never thought of it until I was reading your book and listening to some of your interviews. I, as of about three and a half years ago, my mother died very unexpectedly in a car accident. Oh my God, I'm sorry. I appreciate that. Um, but I was... I was on vacation with my family on a beach in Florida and we were having a good time. And I got a phone call at like 10 o'clock at night from my aunt who never calls. And you can imagine how that went. She was hysterical and she told me what happened or barely told me what happened. And I just completely shut down. I started shaking violently. I couldn't stand up. I mean, I just sort of lost control of my body, like literally, and I, I was just seized. I mean, I, I thought of it as just a state of shock, and I guess maybe it was that, but the pounding in my chest, the dizziness, the just a kind of, I don't know, a kind of cognitive dissonance that was so intense, my brain just said, nope, 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 fuck that, that th this is not happening, and my body just couldn't, couldn't reconcile it, and I just kind of fell apart, and I think it was a panic attack, and the way you describe the, the physicality of it in the book made me think of it as that. And it's it gave me a lot more sympathy for, for anyone who, who experiences that, even semi-regularly, because it's, it is debilitating, literally. Physically and mentally. And I'm so sorry that you went through that. My God, what, a, what an awful thing. Um, and I'm sorry that you experienced those physical sensations afterwards. Although, if your body's going to seize up with shock and with grief, you know, it's going to happen when you get a phone call that your mother has been killed in, in a car wreck. Um, I mean, that's, yeah, I don't know. I'm so sorry about that. It just seems that in, in many ways, that's the rational way that our bodies and our brains should behave amidst the face of the worst possible news that we could get. There was almost nothing harder than that except losing a child. Well, I mean, I, 
I didn't mean to lay something super heavy on you like that, but I, I'm trying to relate to the experience and, and I'm sure other people... Have- the beauty of this book is that I open myself up to this and that everybody's been sharing their stories with me. And I'm realizing how many other people out there have undergone this terrifying experience um, and how often they go through it and they don't have anybody to talk to. And sharing is is among the best medicines that I've found to deal with this. So I'm, thank you for sharing. I, I feel honored that you did share it with me and your listeners. Something that you say in the book is that having a panic attack really is this experience of the, the fear of losing control. And that's kind of how it felt. Whether Obviously there's the shock of grief, but also this feeling that this thing happened, it's quite literally unbearable. I cannot accept that it's happening, but I'm, I've totally lost control of the situation. And it's just the collision of those emotions just creates a kind of, I don't know, just, you know, malfunction. So one of the definitions of a panic attack is that it happens with no discernible threat nearby, right? This is something, you know, I'm standing in front, for me, I'm standing in front of a camera and it often happens to me in the most calm of situations, right? The calmer it is and the easier it is, the harder it is for me because my fear is the expectation of perfection. So I'm not under a threat when I have my panic attacks, but hearing of this tragedy about your mother, in many ways, I guess that could be considered a threat. Um, But again, you're not physically threatened. I don't know. I wonder how long that experience, that somatic experience of seizing up, of heart racing, of shaking, of of trembling, how long did that last for you? Do you remember? Uh, Maybe 20 or 30 minutes. I ended up kind of walking out of the condo we were staying in. I just went for a long walk and sat down um, near the water and I just slowly gathered myself um, to the point where I could speak and and walk. But yeah, I I think the real intensity of it was probably maybe 15 minutes or so. And then then it was kind of a, a very gradual kind of glide back into something resembling coherence. Yeah. The length of a panic attack varies, but typically the actual instance of panic lasts anywhere from 15 to 90 seconds. That's the period in which our bodies and our brains are assessing the threat. And after that, it's just high level anxiety, which is also debilitating. Um, I'm not trying to analyze what, what happened to you, but in general, like one of the things that actually helped me is knowing that the actual period of panic is fleeting. And having that knowledge was actually a great weapon and tool in my arsenal because I was like, okay, it's, it's fleeting. Once, once it's over, it goes away. I recognize that there's no threat. My body is sort of readjusts. The adrenaline and the cortisol are, have coursed through my system and they're now burning themselves out essentially or being digested. And then it's just anxiety. And all of us live with anxiety every day. But I, I mean, like you're still dealing with that grief and that moment of yours with your mother. It's just so physically painful. You know, um, my dad was killed in a plane crash when I was 12. And I remember that physical sensation of pain upon hearing the news. Um, and it lasted and it came back. So it's, it's something that, you know, human bodies and brains are weird things about how we, we experience these traumas and these, the, this terrible news and then how our bodies acclimate them. Well, I think that begs a pretty important question, which is, why do our brains keep doing this to us? It is very clearly unproductive. <laughs> in, in, in most, it's the platonic ideal of an unproductive event uh, or experience. So why does this keep 
happening to us? This is the central question that I started out with. First, I am broken. How can I get fixed? Second is, why do humans even experience panic attacks? Why do we even experience anxiety? We know medically that it is among the most unhealthy things to do. The cortisol is coursing through your your muscles and your body to give your body enough glucose to keep running, but that creates all sorts of cascades of problems. People gain weight, they have gut issues, heart issues, high blood pressure. It's so unhealthy. So how has it even persisted in the human genome, I asked, right? Like, we don't have hair all over our faces. We don't have tails anymore. We have these wonderful opposable thumbs. Why the hell do we have panic? And right, like, and it, it leaves you vulnerable. You're standing there, me in front of a live shot. I, I'm like, I can't focus on anything because my brain, one of the other things that happens is that your fight or flight mechanism, your stress response makes certain primitive abilities in your brain, enhances them and decreases others, right? So I started on this very long jag of talking to evolutionary biologists and psychologists and psychiatrists about why this is. And what I learned was another part of the healing process for me because it led to forgiveness and self-forgiveness. One of the things that's so interesting about humans and primates is that arguably the best invention of all time is not fire or the wheel, it's fear. So we're so good at being scared that I can go to you know the Modern Museum of Art, see a piece of a work of art there, and it, I can associate it with the panic attacks that I have on air or had on air, and it can actually trigger a panic attack in me. It's it's wondrous, which also goes to the other part of this, right? So okay, that's great. So we learn how to be scared, but that doesn't seem very useful. There are two main buckets of human fear, right? The first is that we're going to be on the savanna and a lion is going to come bursting out of the brush and chew us up. Or a rock is going to fall off the the cliff in our cave and knock us out or our offspring will die from an infected splinter. Or the assholes over in cave seven over there are going to come club us to death. The other fear, so that's the physical fear. The other fear is social, right? Humans developed as a network, right? We needed our group, our tribe, our cave den. And if we did something that would get us ostracized or shunned from that group, it would necessarily mean that we're out there on the savanna whereupon a lion would come out and eat us. So we learn to associate through tens of thousands of generations of being impressed with this fear of not getting kicked out of our group, that we needed to cooperate with other humans in order to survive, we learn to associate social rejection with the fear of death. And that's why when we do something that we think is going to involve social rejection, we feel it as if we're going to be eaten by a lion. We'll be back with more from Matt Gutman after a quick break. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. 
like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Well, as you say in the book, you learned that our brains aren't designed for us to be happy. Exactly. Which is rather unfortunate news, but uh, as as a brain haver <laughs> myself, I, I can confirm that. That, that checks out. <laughs> so there's that. We're designed to be, to survive and to make, if we can, to procreate. That's pretty much it. The rest of you, if you experience contentment or happiness along the way, then it's, you deserve a pat on the back. Then we should congratulate ourselves for the happiness we achieve. I'm serious. And for me, that was great. I thought, oh, I've done that. The book really catalogs your journey, this three or four year journey um, to conquer it. That's quite the right word your your panic attacks and and there's there's a ton there and we can't talk about all of it but if you could just say a bit about some of the things you 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 did try and and how it went and we'll just sort of go from there so initially and even before i had that panic attack during our reporting on on kobe bryant you know i i tried propranolol which is a beta blocker which is used for a lot of a lot of folks use it in public speaking and i tried xanax uh, and I was seeing a psychiatrist at the time. And I was also on the SSRI Paxil, which I'd been on for 18 years. I'd had some PTSD in my early years reporting in the Middle East, and a psychiatrist prescribed it to me. And it worked really well for anxiety for a long time. But none of that stopped panic. And then so with that psychiatrist during this, and I'm doing air quotes here, this journey, I decided, like, listen, I believed, I really did believe that somewhere in that magical prescription pad of his, there was an answer, right? The great forest of pharmacology had something for me that would work. So we tried GABAs, which are anti-seizure medication, um, benzos, obviously, Stratera, which is a non-stimulant form of ADHD medication, Adderall, a ton of different things. So nothing worked really for me in pharmacology. And I didn't really want to drug myself with Xanax, which kind of did work to the extent that every time I went on air, which is sometimes 15 times a week, I'd have to take a Xanax. Like I, I couldn't fathom living that kind of life. And so my wife, this was early in 2021, 2020, my wife had had this experience going to a mushroom facilitator, a woman who does mushroom journeys in San Francisco. And you sit on the bed and you lie down and she gives you a dose of psilocybin and you travel. And my wife had this amazing, cathartic, life-building experience. You know, she was transported to, I guess, a Mayan temple and there was a lion there and the lion opened its maw and through its, its gaping mouth shone a light, a beacon of knowledge, which permeated my wife's being and told her her life's mission. And I was like, yes, yes, I want the lion with the maw and the, the, the beacon. 
And so, you know, months later, I went and, and tried to do my own psilocybin experience. And it didn't quite work because I had a very high tolerance for mushrooms and I kept having to take more. And uh, it, was, it was wonderful because I actually, instead of the experience I thought I would have, which is of um, pain, I, I felt this incredible inner strength. I, I sort of hallucinated being inside Half Dome in Yosemite and, and looking out through the skin of the mountain. And I kept seeing these thousand-year-old oaks, sort of their bark unfolding, just this strength of solidity. And so you know, parts of it were, were really wonderful. And even before that, I had tried something, which I hadn't tried before because, you know, being suspended for a while gets your, frees up your schedule, which was breathwork, holotropic breathwork, which folks out there don't know. It's, I, I thought it was some sort of, sort of yoga, meditation, calm thing, which I thought would be nice and, and comfortable. Have you ever tried it? I have. Yeah. So this coach does, you know, that. So because everything I do is intense and I do things intensely, I, I went all at it. You know, I was all in. Two breaths through the belly, one out through the mouth. And within minutes, my hands started to lobster claw and I'm sort of turning my hands in like an infant would. Um, and I started feeling numbness in my extremities. And then I started going somewhere. And then I started this cry. I just started weeping, sobbing uncontrollably. Um, and it was, it was not embarrassing. It was wonderful. Even though I was in a room full of other people doing breath work, um, a buddy of mine was, was the coach, the, the class uh, instructor. And he came and he grounded me by putting his hands on my legs, not to stop me, not to take me out, but to let me know that he was there. And that was really the first indication, even before the psilocybin, that there was something inside me that was bigger than panic. The panic was maybe a symptom of something else that was weighing me down. Um, and eventually it turned out to be grief. Um, and so after that experience and after mushrooms, I kept seeking other modalities to get to what I call the well of grief, um, which is this dark place where I store my sadness and my grief from my father's death, um, from seeing some nasty stuff in the Middle East when I was younger, from being held captive by Venezuela, uh, their secret police for five days in, in 2016 that I just never dealt with and all the other stuff. I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I don't know the, the exact identity and, you know, the shape of the sadness that's there. I just know that it lurks there. And I was so afraid of going into that well of grief because I feared that I would never be able to crawl out of it. I'd just be scratching at the bottom of that well stuck there. So I couldn't go. And psychedelics helped me go there. And they helped me stay there long enough to excavate the sadness. So over the next two and a half years, I would try ayahuasca and mescaline and 5-MeO-DMT, which is toad venom and uh, ketamine, all of which basically took me to that well of grief, which was not fun. Like this is not like, you know, Johnny Depp or Hunter Thompson uh, slaloming across Las Vegas in a Chevy Caprice. This is like Matt Gutman sitting on a couch with these people wondering why he's crying so much, right? Like, but it was, it was healing. It was very, very healing. You call yourself a, a courageous coward in the book, and you're making me think about that right now. And it really resonated with me. I mean, I, I like you, I think, I've always been willing to do physically challenging things, but I've 
I've also always been terrified of doing anything emotionally or psychologically vulnerable. And this is something a lot of men in particular struggle with. And it's a real problem, I think. I think David Brooks mentioned it in one of your episodes, the masculinity issue, right? We are, we are told that we've got to stay under control. We're told that we've got to distance ourselves from our emotions. Um, I guess he characterized Washington as the most emotionally detached place on the planet, something like that. And then that was very much the case for me. I, I'm a correspondent who goes to war. I've seen some of the most horrific things and been in some of the scariest situations. I'm not supposed to fear anything like that, but we are human. And I also think that there are different kinds of people. There are people who are novelty seekers, who would be the people in our cave groups who would run out, you know, carry the spear and, and try to go get that mammoth, or would be the people who would, you know, try out that mushroom. Is it deadly or delicious, right? And society needs those people. But we also need to take care of ourselves. And that's one of the things that I learned um, is that this paradox of the courageous coward is actually also natural, right? Um, you know, how could somebody who's so unafraid in physical situations be so afraid emotionally? Ultimately, it makes sense. And um, I learned to touch, to get to that guy who's afraid emotionally and sort of bring him out of his shell a little bit more. But I'm curious, I'm, I'm gonna turn the tables right now. Have you, so you did holotropic breath work. Have you tried psychedelics as well? Yes, I have. I somehow convinced Vox to send me down to Costa Rica back in 2018 to do ayahuasca for a week and then write an essay about the experience. It, without question, is the most honest thing I've ever written. And I think part of the reason I've received more messages from people in response to it than anything I've done by a mile is you know, these things we're, we're talking about, they are so common. The things that I wrote about uh, in that piece that I had to deal with, you know, the, the fear of judgment, um, the regret over all the time I wasted posing for other people, all the things I missed in my life because I was so buried in my own head. These are, these are universal human experiences. And the only way to deal with them is to stare them down and let go of the shame. Um, you know, psychedelics can help with that. They really can, but so can other things. And yeah, I think people like you putting yourself out there in this way also helps because it, it shatters the taboos uh, and the stigmas. And that's something that we should all participate in as best we can. And that's why I think it's important to have these conversations. Yeah. And, and there is something that needs to be dealt with in terms of masculinity in our society. It is courageous to go down to Costa Rica and try ayahuasca, which is not fun, people. I mean, most people do not have fun experiences. Uh, it was not fun. I, I shit my pants and, and puked all over myself and uh, had to confront a lot of really, um, really ugly truths about myself that I think I, I did a very good job of avoiding. But it was therapeutic. You know, you sometimes you just... The only way out is through, uh, to, to use a cliche. And boy, one thing psychedelics can do is slingshot your ass right through whatever's going on, whether you're ready for it or not. Um, but it was, it was intense, yeah, and very, very, uh, very, very difficult um, at times. By the way, if anybody's wondering out there, I also shat my pants a couple times. So I had to take so much of it. I was, I, I, it did not have the psychedelic effect on me. So I'm just lying there on this mattress in the floor in Peru, 
and everybody's like moaning, some in delight, some in whatever. There's this all this retching around me, and I'm retching too, but I'm like, I'm not feeling it. And so I ended up taking on my third ayahuasca uh, session, um, ceremony, they call it, five times the dose, five cups. And it just ripped. That's a lot. Just for, just so people know, that's a lot. I, I don't think I ever did that. <laughs> did not drink that They've much. Never, they like, have never given anybody that much. And it just ripped my stomach to shreds. And I was sick for 10 days afterwards. Um, yeah. But there's, there's also a therapy in, in the digestive discontent, right? That they say that the, the actual feeling of sickness and the pain, there's therapy in that as well. Um, so I, you know, I didn't have the, the God, um, I didn't have the messages that I wanted to get from Mother Aya, as, as they call ayahuasca. Um, but it was an experience that I'll, I'll never forget, experiences I'll never forget. Yeah, you know, when, when people write to me about that, I almost always get some version of the question. So how are you doing today? <laughs> you know, did, did all of those changes you talked about stick? And, and my answer is just not super satisfying. Some of them did, some of them didn't. It's a constant struggle. None of this, none of this stuff is like pulling a lever and everything and your life gets corrected. It's just not like that. But I can say, and I think you've arrived in a similar place, the experience made visible some of these fears inside me. And that was very liberating and at least gave me an opportunity to heal, which is something you, you can't do until you're honest with yourself in a non-judgmental way. So you can let go of that shame and, and just breathe, you know? One of the beauties of psychedelics, and again, I, I think there are other modalities to to reach that kind of place where you, yes. you can shed the shame uh, and really be introspective. But one of the beauties is for, I think for men especially, is that it doesn't give you a choice. If you can actually reach, achieve that psychedelic level, you don't have a choice. So you're not in your right mind because when I'm in my right mind, I realized my right mind's trying to control this. It's trying to tell me, don't go there. Don't go to the well of grief. Don't cry. Don't be emotional. You don't want to go there. That's a bad place for you, Matt. You need to stay here. But under the influence of psychedelics and actually, and breath work as well, like I'm gone. There is no Matt Gutman to be able to direct traffic. And so the emotional traffic can veer off to the side of emotions and dealing with stuff and introspection. And during these ketamine sessions that I did in Ojai, California, the psychiatrist who administered it and his friend, you know, we talked about it. He's like, there is no magic. This is not a magic bullet. Um, there is no, as you just mentioned, lever that you can pull that makes you okay. He's like the six foot four, redheaded dreadlock guy who wears velour tracksuits. He's like, wellness is work, man. <laughs> you know, like, uh, and and he's right. Uh, it's just constant constant maintenance, and you know, life and work and and partners in your life and, and spouses, things happen. So we've just got to constantly be on top of it. And maybe that's dispiriting for people that it's constant work, but. It's just the way things are. This is this is life. And like in the book, I don't tell people that I have a solution. I don't tell them that I found the solution. I found modalities that worked for me um, and that I can utilize. More from Matt Gutman after one more quick break.
to connect this back to what we were saying earlier about panic, that it's the essence of that is is the fear of losing control. And I think the great virtue of of working with psychedelics is that I mean the the, the title of that the essay I wrote was the brutal mirror. <laughs> you have no choice. You you have to see whatever is there, whether you want to or not. And as terrifying as it is, it is also liberating and, and, and healing. But um, you, you have no choice but to surrender. And that's part of what makes it um, therapeutic. Not to linger too long in this, but one of the guys who did this retreat with me wrote down what he felt. Like, I'm sitting on the mattress in this hut in Peru and I'm looking up at the ceiling and I don't feel anything. And the guy next to me is experiencing this. The ayahuasca let me in completely. She turned me into a plant. I died and returned from a seed pod of pure energy. I could feel the shamans. I navigated the space home, poured love into my son as he slept, had intergalactic soul sex with my wife, became God. Felt the pain of all humanity. My hands emitted energy that I could manipulate at will. That's about half of it. Yeah, great. yeah, I'll take three. <laughs> Sign me up. And again, this, this stuff, it sounds so, um, quite frankly, ridiculous, really. But unfortunately, there's no way to talk about it without sounding ridiculous. That's <laughs> you know, just... Yeah, and nobody wants to hear about anybody's trips. But when I did ketamine, there, there are a couple of things that are good about psychedelics that you can use in other spaces in your life. So I keep a treasure box of sorts of some of the images that I experienced. And one of them on ketamine was I was soaring over this, I guess it was sort of an Amazon rainforest and I was flying and I swooped upwards and then perched on this high cliff overlooking this valley of lush green beyond. Um, And then I just took a nosedive towards the canopy. And as I was flying down, you know, at terminal velocity towards the earth, the earth rose and the forest rose to meet me. And it was like the ultimate trust fall. And I was caught and I was safe. And I treasure that. And so when I meditate or when I do mindfulness, you know, I will focus on that. And I will, I will go to that treasure box of images that gave me strength during these psychedelic journeys. And I will sort of reanimate them. And uh, and so, like, that's one of the beauties. And it's actually strengthened my meditation and mindfulness practice, not that it's anything to speak about at all, um, but it's strengthened that because I, I have a place to go to. Do you feel okay now, Matt? And I'm not asking that in a superficial way, and I don't want a superficial answer. I, I'm asking sincerely, do you feel more at peace in the world now than you did three or five or 10 years ago? Undoubtedly. But if you had framed the question differently, Matt, are you cured of panic? I would say no. Hmm. I, I don't think I can ever say yes. And part of that is, you know, this wellness is work concept. Um, but I feel better about myself largely because if I have a panic again on air, most of the time I got through it anyway, right? Like I'm, it's going to be okay. I'm not going to carry the shame and the anger around like I used to. The drill sergeant in my head who used to say the most hateful things to me, he's been retired. He's often in Tahiti somewhere and uh, uh, slightly kinder. I'm still, you know, I'm still hard on myself, but a bit of a more professional drill sergeant is in there telling me, all right, get him next time. 
Um, uh, this is about everything. And so like, I've learned this inner forgiveness and I've learned that it's okay. And mostly Sean, I've learned that panic is normal, right? That like, I have also seen how many people experience this everywhere we go. Every, in every interaction in life, you can rest assured that half the people in the room probably have had a panic attack in their lifetime. And many of them have even had to go to the hospital for it. And yet we don't talk about it. So I know that I'm not alone. I know that panic is normal. I know that panic is fleeting. And I know that if I have it, it's going to be okay. I'm going to be caught in that trust fall. I'm going to be okay. When was your last full-blown panic attack? It, December 2020. Hmm. Um, but I'll tell you, I was getting really anxious ahead of the publicity for this book uh, over the summer. I was not in a great place. And it was just so much pressure. The writing the book was easy and, and enjoyable. Right? I really enjoy the process. It's, it's my second book. And I, I, I love just digging deep. And I love doing the research. And I enjoy the Tetris of writing. But the publicity, I just didn't expect that I'd have to put myself out there and email people like you out of the blue to say, hey, what do you think of this? It's very humbling. And so it got me down over the summer and I was on vacation with the family and I was not in a great headspace. But then I harnessed the tools that I've learned over the past almost four years. And I was like, okay, I know what to do. The best drugs, my most favorite drugs are endogenous. They're inside me right now, right? Okay, serotonin. I'm gonna go take a five-minute walk. A five-minute walk lifts your mood. I'm gonna go work out and get endorphins, which are endogenous morphine. Endogenous morphine, we have that pain-killing medicine right inside of us from 30 minutes or more of moderate to strenuous exercise. I'm going to embrace my wife, chest to chest, so that we can feel our heart rates, which is the maximal release of oxytocin, which is the love hormone. Right, like I'm going to access this stuff. I cut my caffeine intake by 75%, right? So I have like half calf once a day. I stopped drinking because like even like casual summer drinking, I realized it was making me anxious. And so like within a week, I was so much better. And so I was able to take control of my mood and, you know, doing more mindfulness, you know, just like tiny exercises that take not even 60 seconds that help you out. And, you know, spending five minutes meditating. And I was able to like seize control. I know we don't like to say that, but get out of that anxious mode uh, and feel a lot better. I'm just going to say what I'm thinking. Please. Um, you know, this thing we do, uh, journalism, you know, you're on, you're on TV. I do this. But we both perform in different ways. We We put ourselves out there for people to applaud or or mock and that kind of nudity is scary because you're being you're being judged all the time and and there are all these ways now that people can let you know how great or shitty they think you are and and I don't care what anyone says it sucks when people tell you you're shitty but you know and I know deep down that it doesn't matter we're not that important people's opinions of us don't matter. The world is going to roll on its way, no matter what, whether I get another five-star review or you screw up or nail your next segment. You know, this stuff is forgotten as quickly as it happens. And the real freedom is to be found in not anchoring your self-esteem and your happiness to the judgments of other people. Um, but that is, of course, easier said than done because 
as you were saying, we, we're, we are hardwired to, to really care about these things, and it's, it can be debilitating. Who's judging you, Sean? Whose judgment do you fear? That's a hell of a question. Um, I fear the judgment of my colleagues. Uh, I fear the judgment of my family, my friends, myself. So I feel and fear the same thing. And my fear of judgment came from my peers and my cohorts at ABC. There are 10 million people who watch World News Tonight, but I don't fear their judgment. I felt like I needed to be accepted by the ABC group, these esteemed journalists um, and, and broadcasters like David Muir and Diane Sawyer and George Stephanopoulos and all these people and the executive producers and the president of the company to whom I need to show that I belong. And that was my fear. If I screw up before them, it's all lost. And so going on air, I wasn't thinking about 10 million people. I was thinking about 20 people. And that's my cave group. Right? That's the group that I was so afraid of being ostracized from. And the more I learned about evolutionary psychology, the more I realized that makes total sense. And that we are wired to care what other people think. And that actually, you know, I know we're told that we shouldn't care, but we should care. We have to care because we live in these network communities, not what people say on Twitter, but we need to care about what people in our community think of us. Um, and that is important. And it's okay to fear the social judgment of those people, you know, not overly so, but also to know how to, to deal with it. How has all this work you've done changed how you show up in your life for your wife and kids and, and friends? It's been really good. It's made me much more attuned to the people around me. And I think I'm sensitive by nature, but it made me even, I think, more sensitive I do this thing with my son when he goes to sleep and I tuck him in, I've started to do more sort of meditation with him. I'll lie down and I'll do my mantra and I will try to breathe sort of theatrically loud so that he can hear and, and sort of match the rhythm. And we go to sleep that way. And, you know, I, I've sort of imbued these techniques in our life. And my kids are massively anxious. They come by it honestly, two anxious parents. So they're genetically predisposed to experience this. But, you know, we try to give them all the tools, even when they don't know that they're getting the, these, the vegetables of these tools along with them. But I, I think it's, it's made me an easier person to live with and to be around. And certainly less miserable and self-hating, right? Like that was the worst part of it was I was constantly self-hating and beating myself up. I just want to say, this is a lovely book. And I hope this doesn't sound corny. Um, and obviously we just met, but I'm proud of you for writing it. I know how scary it is to expose yourself in that way. Uh, and it's not easy, but you do discover pretty quickly when you do that you're not alone in your struggles. We're all going through the same shit. Um, and you know what? It's, it's nice to be reminded of that <laughs> sometimes, you know, there's, there's healing in just that awareness that we're, we're all battling the same, the same demons really to varying degrees and in our own ways, but it's, it's, it's just being human. It's exactly right. It is the human condition. And everybody is going through something, and probably right now. And that's the beauty of community as well, 
right? One of the things that happened to me during this is that I found a community of fellow people who experienced panic. And it started out with these small support groups that I joined, which were very hard to find in the country. And then it just morphed into every, like half the people I know experience this. And so just being open about it and talking about it has been revelatory and cathartic and wonderful. Once again, the book is called No Time to Panic. Matt Goodman, this was a pleasure. Thanks for being here. Pleasure was mine. Thanks, Sean. Patrick Boyd engineered this episode. Alex Overington wrote our theme music. And A.M. Hall is the boss. As always, let us know what you think of this episode. Drop us a line at thegrayarea at box.com. And please share it with your friends on all the socials. New episodes of The Gray Area drop on Mondays. Listen and subscribe. The Gray Area is part of Box, which doesn't have a paywall. Help us keep Box free by going to box.com slash give. Give.